0: At 73, my guest today, Denise Kaufman, is kind of the ultimate Renaissance woman, an active member of the 60s Bay Area psychedelic rock scene who's seen and done it all and continues to do it all. The longtime singer and bassist is a member of Ace of Cups, which is this pioneering all female psychedelic rock band that opened for Jimi Hendrix, the band Janis Joplin, and so many others, and that she shared the stage with people like the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane. She continues to play and record new music with the recently reunited group, which has been praised by Rolling Stone, Billboard, CBS, This Morning, NPR, All Things Considered, The Guardian, and has recorded new songs with Bob Weir, Jackson Brown, David Freiberg, and more. A deeply spiritual person who's been exploring energy flowing, community connectedness for over half a century, Denise also is a trained yoga teacher who's taught everyone from Madonna to Quincy Jones and so many others. She splits her time between Venice Beach, where she practices and records with the Ace of Cups and teaches yin yoga, and Kauai, Hawaii, where she founded the Island School in 1977 and lives on an organic farm and surfs in her free time. She's just an awesome human being, and I am so excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Your mom, Golda, was actually um, a London Jew who was on her way to the U.S. when the London bombing broke out?
3: My mother was a widow, and so my brother was a little boy with her, and she was coming to the World's Fair in New York, uh, and they were en route on the Atlantic when Britain entered the war and London started to get bombed.
0: They were coming as as a, a vacation, essentially.
3: She married quite young. She married like in 20 or 21, and she... Um, Her husband had uh, gotten uh, cancer, brain cancer. And so she nursed him for some years. And after he passed, the family said, you know, you should take Julian and have a little time off. And and they had some cousins in New York. And so she came to go to the World's Fair and then basically never left.
0: Yeah. So the U.S. became the home. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like music obviously touched on your life really early, but it was also, it sounds like a big part of her life as well. Yes,
3: it was. She had a beautiful soprano voice and did sort of, light opera and theater, although, you know, in her family, girls weren't allowed to really be on the stage. Mm -hmm. So they could play for um, charitable events, which they did. And there was, I think it was called, there was like a a settlement house kind of place in London that was sort of a Jewish, like kind of a a center for people of all different, in, in the community that particularly needed support. And so my mom volunteered there. So they did musical events there. So she had Opportunities, But, um, you know, when she came to America, she was not in quite a strict uh, background, yeah.
0: Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, she finds herself in a country she never intended in staying at with right. a young child in New York. Yeah. Had you talked to her about sort of like what that season of her life was like?
3: Well, she's passed, but I yeah. had talked to her and she um, did actually did an oral history. It was a rough time for her. Uh, the, pe- the family that she came to, the cousin she came to stay with who from what she said that Her parents, my grandparents had hosted them a number of times in England, but as soon as the war broke out, I think they felt that she might be a burden. She and my brother, and she felt that. So she picked herself up and went to a a boarding house and, um, she couldn't legally work because she had come on a tourist visa, but she found a little uh, work in a doctor's office as a receptionist underground, you know, under the table. And then, you know, she was smart and charming and adorable (laughs) and, um, Pretty soon, she was able to go to Canada at some point and re enter the country on, and get a different visa with some help. She moved to Boston, and that's where she met my dad.
0: Got it. Right. Because um, your dad was Harvard, right? So,
3: yeah, he grew up in, in Brookline.
0: Oh, got it. So, then how does the family end up on, um, on the West Coast?
3: My dad uh, had enlisted and went to officer's candidate school in Louisiana. And um, they married while he was in the army before he got sent to, he wanted to fight Hitler. Um, so he enlisted and he got sent to uh, the Pacific. He got sent to the Presidio in San Francisco and he was an army supply officer, a Lieutenant in charge of army supplies on Naval ships. So he crossed the Pacific nine times during the war. So that was his job. So my mom and brother moved out to San Francisco to be near him when he got off on leave. And they all fell in love with San Francisco.
0: Yeah and what's not to fall in love with in San Francisco. <laughs> you know it's funny though because I think a lot of, a lot of people think about San Francisco and the Bay Area the way it is now or the way you know the last really 10 20 years have become but when they were there it was a very different place and then also when when you were a young kid you know and your early teens it was a profoundly different place.
3: Yeah. I had so much freedom in the city to go everywhere because it's a small city, right? It's seven square miles. That. And you could take a bus anywhere. And so, you know, I would take my fishing rod and go down to aquatic park and just go fish with the old Italian men who were fishing there. I'd take my bow and arrow and go to golden gate park out by, you know, 30, I think it was like 32nd street and go, go to the archery range. And you know, somebody would come and pick me up from the family, but, um, you know, there just wasn't a sense that it wasn't safe for kids to just wander around, and I did.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you got involved in um, in music really early on, also on the same yeah. side in the children's opera there.
3: Yes, well, it was a really interesting little company. It was uh, started. Well, it was only um, Norbert and Hetty Gingold, who were Viennese escapees from the Nazis. They had numbers on their arms, so they didn't exactly really escape. But they, in, they ended up in San Francisco. He he was the pianist for Bertolt Brecht for some of his work, wow. um, Mr. Gingold. And he wrote a number of light operas that were based on the children's fairy tales. And so he had a thing called San Francisco Children's Opera. And they had a little house in, in the avenues in the Richmond district. And they had three companies. So you could be either in the Monday and Thursday company or the Tuesday and Friday or the Wednesday and Saturday. And... You worked on a play for your, with your company for three months, but in that time, you were in the chorus of the other two companies when they had their plays. It was amazing. And Mr. Gingold, you know, would sit at the upright piano, and he was the director, and Mrs. Gingold did all the costumes and sets. The plays happened every month at the Marines Memorial Theater downtown San Francisco. It was a great experience.
0: That's amazing. Did Did you have any sense? I mean, I know this is what like when you were sort of like um, single digits, even like yeah,
3: yeah. I started when I was like seven or eight. Yeah, seven. Maybe. Right.
0: Did you? Um, besides just f- feeling drawn to it and having you know, like something about it was was amazing. Did you have any sense early on that this would be something that would follow you for life and maybe even take up some of your professional interests?
3: I never thought that I would do anything. I mean, music was central to my life. I mean, that was, you know, children's opera was, I was already playing piano from the time I was three, figuring things out on the piano. And I started taking piano lessons at three or four and at the conservatory of music in San Francisco. So, you know, music was just central. And even my family, When we go to um, I kind of Adopted aunties and uncles uh, uh, lived up on Mount Tamalpais in Marin County with my mom's friends from Boston. And um, um, we'd go have dinner together and then sit around a, a little campfire outside at the house and sing folk songs from the, and Uncle Max would pull out an accordion and was very much central in my family. My dad could not carry a tune. (laughs) <laughs> but he had a great memory for lyrics. He was an English literature major. So he was the lyric guy. And then my mom, you know, had a beautiful voice. And so, so I got somewhere in the middle. Not a great voice like my mom, but the good lyric sense from my dad. And I kind of fell in the
0: right. way. <laughs> it's like you have the, word, the words and the melody from the, yeah. the two yeah. different sides. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah. It's incredible, I think, when you can have an experience like that really young. I, I, I remember when I was pretty young. One of my mom's oldest friends played cello, I think it was in the Boston Pops. And um they lived in this renovated church out in the middle of nowhere, like a couple hours outside. But every New Year's Eve, literally the the what used to be the front of the church was their living room, which is this massive, you know, space. And they would have all of the players from the symphony come oh on New Year's Eve. They'd all start drinking and like stay up all night long. And at some point, all the instruments would get broken out and they would just jam for hours and hours and hours. And to this day, you know, this is 45, 50 years ago. It's still so vivid in my mind. It just, I think that you get imprinted like that and it never leaves you.
3: That's amazing.
0: But yeah, I think there, there's something about it that, especially when it touches down that early in life, I feel like it changes the way that you look at the world to a certain extent. Also, it's there's a musicality to the way that you see patterns and interpret interactions. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you feel that too. I feel like you there, there's a, a, a sensibility, there's almost a rhythm that I, I feel like when it becomes a part of you through exposure to or playing of or the creative side of music, even if it's composing and songwriting it becomes almost like a lens through which you process yeah. your experience of everything else.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, sort of both orally, you know, like the way you listen to, you know, the sounds of the birds or just the sounds and rhythms that you hear in life. I think, I mean, for me also phrases and, and and words that I hear that trigger something or, you know, sometimes I'll just hear something and I'll I write it down like it, is your, it triggers a, a lyric idea
0: or a theme idea, you know? Yeah. You, um, I mean, from, from this early beginning, I know at, at some point you end up in all girls boarding school, I guess in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. which again is one of these places where when people hear Palo Alto now, they're like, oh, it's the heart of Silicon Valley and this very different place when we're yes, talking it about was. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what the scene was like there then.
3: Well, you know, the first I went there for my last two years of high school. So the first year I was a boarding student and the second year we had a little apartment down there. And so I got to not have to board. But, um, you know, Palo Alto, of course, the school I went to was sort of a uh, was established as sort of a feeder school to Stanford. So the Stanford campus is right there. So there's that, you know, the intellectual and educational, you know, (laughs) <laughs> Radiant status, Stanford. Um, but also, what was there was the uh, nascent uh, folk, the folk scene. When I was a junior, I got to join the Stanford Folk Music Club. So my last two years of high school, I was the only high school student in that. And those, the people that were in that, were all Stanford students, graduate students, and a number of them had gone to, um, the, gone to the Freedom Summer in the South to register voters. And so, you know, Stanford wasn't as politically active at school by a long shot as Berkeley was, but there were those folks who were, and there was also Iris Sandpearl, who had a bookstore in in, uh, in Palo Alto that he was sort of a mentor to Joan Baez, and there was that little scene there. And then, of course... uh, we lived when I got, we had a little apartment for my last year, and it was on University Avenue. And the very top of University Avenue was a place called The Tangent. And that's where Jerry and Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Band and the Bluegrass band was like the Foggy River Mountain Boys, whatever band was called. I used to go hear those guys all the time.
0: Right. And, we, and when you say Jerry, we're talking about Jerry. Jerry Garcia. Yeah. This was pre-Dead. He was, he would... Zodiacs. It would have been Zodiacs, yeah.
3: Well, the Zodiacs were that was that was more Pig Pen's, but Jerry was in it. Sometimes that was right, more right. an R and B band. That's the band I hired for my graduation party.
0: Oh, no kidding. No
3: kidding. I had heard the Jodi- I had heard the Zodiacs play and it was like that, I love them. So they played. I we had an after party from after the regular party for graduation and there zodiacs was my band.
0: So you've got like Jerry Garcia and Pig Pen playing your high school graduation. Right. <laughs> that yeah. is pretty incredible. Yeah. Back then, were you were you playing with them at all also? or
3: No, I wasn't, you know, and I, I used to go to the music store where Jerry taught, but I don't ever remember meeting him there or meeting Bobby there. There was a fellow named Dick Jaqua, who also was a, kind of a folk player in, in Palo Alto. And he, the school, I wanted to take guitar lessons, so the school would arrange for him to come once a week. And so, because I couldn't leave, but that was when I was boarding. And so I was, uh, I would study with, with Richard, with Dick. And he, he was a bright light, you know, because I had moved from San Francisco. And one of the reasons my parents sent me there was because I'd been like sneaking out to all the folk clubs in San Francisco for the last, you know, year and a half before that. Um, they were just, they wanted me to be, you know, a little bit away from what was the, that scene in San Francisco. I wasn't doing anything really that bad, but they, this scared them, you know.
0: Yeah. Do they realize what scene you were dropping into, though?
3: No, in Palo Alto, they had no idea. No.
0: Right. No.
3: Um, <laughs> Yeah.
0: So, I mean, at the same time, you know, you're getting really deep into music. You're getting exposed to these incredible musicians. Like you said, Stanford was one energy. Berkeley was a whole different energy. But the whole Bay Area at that time also really becomes the center of a huge amount of political activism, which it sounds like you were really strongly drawn to.
3: That I was into political activism from the time I was, I can remember. I mean, like I started a... Youth for Kennedy at my junior high school in San Francisco. I think I was on my first picket line at 14
0: hmm.
3: in San Francisco picketing a theater that in the South, that was a, like the United Artists Theater, I think it was called and in, in the South there, that chain was segregated. So I actually went with my little neighbor to go to a movie there and we got there and there was a picket line and we found out what it was. We're like, we're joining. We didn't go to the movie. We joined the picket line. And I still have this letter that I typed out to the head of the theater chain Asking him to desegregate the theater in the South, you know. And, and, you know, especially I think being exposed to the people that had come back from uh, voter registration for Freedom Summer. Um, I, I wrote a song, you know, when I was 16 about Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman after they were um, murdered. So that was really deep for me, everything that was going on. Of course, I, you know, it was too young to go down there, but I took it deeply. And, of course, folk music, you know, it was so, um, I mean, our drummer asked me recently, I don't remember, you know, why didn't you go into politics, you know, Denise, you know, and I was like, you know, you know, you know and I was like, well, politics and music were together, it, it was the same Thing for me at that time, you know, it wasn't just one or the other.
0: I feel like sometimes we we forget that. I I recently actually had a conversation with Ellen Harper, who was sort of, you know, along with her family, um, down in Claremont, California, like growing the folk music center there, which was sort of like the Southern California hotbed. Yes. And we were talking about this same idea that when when a lot of people think about folk music now, it feels very kumbaya and peace and love and super chill. Not realizing that the roots of it are deeply embedded in protest.
3: Yes, and you know, before that, I mean, the chain gang music. I mean, you know, and 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 the music coming out of the horror of enslavement. All of that, you know, we can't separate.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a continuum, really. Um- you end up not at Stanford, but at Berkeley.
3: Yeah, I went to Stanford for the summer, and then, but I was already going to Berkeley in the fall.
0: And again, you land on campus there, in the middle of the free speech movement.
3: Well, that hadn't started. I landed on campus, I was 17, with September, fall of 64. And um, I mean, I went there for, you know, in, in front of Sproul Hall in the plaza, that was the big administration building. There was this plaza with, you know, card tables everywhere with somebody there representing every organization on the full spectrum of political thought, giving you their pamphlets and standing basically on their, whatever their soapbox was and telling you why, you know, why, you know, SDS was the organization or why the anarchists were, or why the John Burke Society was or whatever it was like, you know, and I was in heaven. I mean, that's what I went there for. And so I would be taking everybody's brochures and talking to listening. And then within a few weeks of my arrival, you know, the the campus police came and they they took all the tables away and they said, you know, they, we can't have any, any people from off campus, on campus, sharing, spreading any ideas. These tables are illegal. And so from the very first day that happened, I was basically right there. So I went to the very first meet gathering on the steps of Sproul Hall at night. And so I was there from day one in the free speech movement. I was still 17. So when we sat in around Jack Weinberg in the police car, it really seemed that there would be arrests you know, by then we had, there was sort of a core group of people that were the, became the steering committee. And some of them were you know, my friends already. And they said, you can't get arrested, Denise, you're 17. You can't, you'll go to, you know, you'll be in juvie. So you can't get arrested if they start arresting. And, but that didn't happen. The, you know, an agreement was reached. So we dispersed you know, the thousands of us that were there, but then, you know, a month or so later when we entered Sproul Hall, by then I had turned 18. So I was arrested along with, you know, seven hundred something other people.
0: Yeah, I mean, w- what is that like for you? Because you go into a moment like that, knowing like you're deeply convicted. Yes, this matters, and any number of outcomes may happen, including you ending up in jail. Yeah, and when that happens to you, um, are you shocked? Are you horrified? Are you resolved? All the above? None of the above?
3: <laughs> um, I think definitely resolved. Some of my mentors there were the Hallinan family. The father of that family was one of the this lawyers in San Francisco, you know, it was sort of, they they were veterans of protests and all of this kind of thing. So I felt like um, empowered by being with them. And, um, but we had a Hanukkah service in Sproul Hall, it was in December. Um, and by the time the arrest started, You know, they went on for hours because there were 700 something people arrested. I I was I had like an armband because I was like a a official, like an FSM official, free speech food official. And so I was one of the last people taken out. And by the end, the reporters had left and the police got pretty violent. So I got my shoulder torn up and I, um, I had to go to the hospital when I got out of jail. I first went to jail at Santa Rita. I mean, not at Santa Rita, which is where everybody else went. I end up with the last, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 people that they took out to Oakland city jail, which was a lot rougher. I'd never encountered the police except for the nice cop who used to cross me on the way to Sunday school in the crosswalk, Harry, you know? So I didn't have any experience of being beaten up and kicked and being thrown into the elevator with my head, you know, launched into the elevator head first. That was shocking, but I had read about it. I knew that happened to people.
0: Yeah and i mean that that thread has remained you know not with the same level of violence but your level of conviction and resolve it seems like has always been incredibly central to everything you do there there's another um there's another thread that sounds like starts to touch down in your life and in that you know the entire area and the culture around then which is psychedelics right which plays into everything from yeah. the activism to the music to the the whole scene and that's that's something that you step into as well
3: so the kind of the whole fall semester was the speech movement semester at Berkeley. Uh, by the time we got in the spring semester, I met some really interesting people who were doing um, meditation, who were into meditation and aikido and some other interesting explorations that I'd always been into because my mom had done yoga. so I, I'd really been I had my first yoga teacher at fifteen in San Francisco, who was not a teaching me asana, but teaching me meditation and bhakti and devotion. You know, so I was also always drawn to that. So in the spring semester, those people kind of turned me on to, they were, they were taking LFC. I didn't actually start taking it from them, but I knew about it because I'd be around them when they'd be on and be like, well, this is kind of interesting, the space they're in. And uh, eventually a, a friend, you know, offered to have me try it. Uh, actually, what I tried first was uh, DMT. And that's a, it's like LSD, but it's, it's a very compacted. Um, right. And that was incredible. And he was a chemist. He made it. And then after that, I, I tried LSD. So that was probably, I don't know, I want to say January, February of that spring, spring of 65. And um, it opened up what I had always felt, which was there was a connectivity of all, of everything, a oneness to everything and, I just melted into that in that trip. And I started taking it, you know, fairly regularly and trying to understand what that realm was and how to access it more. You know, where's the integration points? I mean, how is it to be be one and then be an individual? What's that?
0: Yeah. I mean, it must have been so interesting to have that experience in the context of, on the one hand, the music scene is all about uniting on, on, but also protest. The other hand, like fierce activism, which is all about clearly defined lines and right. advocacy and fighting. And then to, to enter the world of psychedelics where on an involuntary basis, for an, an unknown amount of time, you're dropped into a place where there's a merging of everything. Right. I'm curious just how you process sort of like these different worlds and inputs and experiences and lenses all at once.
3: It was not easy. I mean, I, first of all to find people to really try and talk with and to, and to be in a realm that was, I didn't have language for, you know, and that was kind of when I met Kesey, that was kind of a big shift for that because in a, he was the first person that I could really, when I said what I was trying to express he totally got it, and he he understood.
0: This Ken Kesey, mm-hmm. um, and and what's become known as the Merry Pranksters. I don't mm-hmm. know if you called yourselves that back then, but I know sort of like. Oh movie. yeah. Um, and the famous bus.
3: Yes, yeah. So I had been playing with a, um, a band. I wasn't in that band, but sometimes I played with them, and and they were good friends. They were still in high school. I was still in you know, Berkeley, but they were a couple of years younger. Great players. And they had a band called The Answer in Berkeley. And the guitar player, Chip Wright, his father had been in that Stanford writing program with Ken Kesey and Ken Babs and Larry McMurtry. Dr. Wright was the head of the Unitarian School of the Ministry, um, which is a national school for Unitarian ministers in Berkeley. And um, they were having their annual conclave for all the Unitarian ministers and and wives down in uh, Asilomar in Monterey. Uh, on the coast as a conference ground there. And um, we, and Dr. Wright had asked us to bring instruments down and play at this event, you know, just bring the band down. So the the week before that, we had had a very, the band and I, the the guys and I had, had a very um, transformative psychedelic trip. And we climbed over the fence at the Greek theater at UC campus. And we were very high. And I had an experience of basically walking off the stage in Greek theater on air. And um, and at some point realizing that I was like, I was an eye walking on air, which one I fell face down onto the concrete below. And I ended up, Chip and I in the the hospital with my face, like two black eyes in my face, you know, a couple of hours later and the doctors taking all these x-rays and finally saying, we don't know what's going on. you, you're, we can see by the, the bruising on your face that you've broken some bones, but we don't see any evidence of it on the X-rays. And I had this experience of like kind of re-entering my body when I took that fall slowly. Like if, I felt like if I re-entered it quickly, I would really be broken up. And if I if I could slow the vibrations down slowly, I could kind of meld things and merge things so they wouldn't be so broken. So. After that happened, I, I basically wandered around Berkeley for a couple of days with, you know, two black eyes and a really beaten-up face. Just, I couldn't talk about it. I didn't know. I was just beyond words with what had happened. And it was that week that we went down to a <laughs> down to a Lamar and Kesey walked up to me just like, What happened to you? And I said, Oh, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. He said, Well, try me. You know, so after that we ended up being on the beach all night. and that was a big relief for my heart to be able to just talk to someone who totally got it.
0: Who got it, yeah.
3: And then next week, we he came up to Berkeley. I was back at school. He came up and he said, I've come to get you. You're coming on the bus. <laughs> so I quit school and got in the bus with him. And he said, by the way, your name is Mary Microgram. You already have a prankster name. <laughs> How was it?
0: Thus then the Tom Wolf Mary Microgram reference in uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test?
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't meet him because... <laughs> By the time he came to do the, all the research and meet everybody, I was already um, you know just about starting the Ace of cups. So I didn't, I never hung out with him. But um, yeah, he did mention uh, that there was this yeah. person. Yeah. A lot
2: can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
0: Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen, long sleeve button down shirt, super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. So Keezy, for those who who didn't know, was not the most beloved person by, um, Government officials and law enforcement, and right. uh, he was not welcome. Ended up, if I recall correctly, faking his death and then yes. splitting to right. Mexico.
3: When we were about ready to do the uh, Trips Festival in San Francisco, which was um, this first big psychedelic event in the city, we've been doing the acid tests all, all over. You know, in Oregon and in um, Palo Alto, and you know, we'd done a lot of acid, a number of acid tests by that Muir Beach. But this was an event with a bunch of different artists and creative people together to do this thing called the Trips Festival. So it had the Mime Troupe. It had some of the bands. It had, um, I think the Pranksters did a lot of the visual because we'd been really working with making the film and, and light shows and things like that. And I think Don Buchla brought, it's like, it's like a synthesizer, like that he could make sound travel all around the room. And Anyway, There were a lot of artists and musicians that were part of creating the Trips Festival. And um, out of that really came the music scene because Bill Graham really got what was possible and ended up going to the Fillmore and renting the Fillmore and everything kind of went from there. But at, just before the Trips Festival, Kesey and Mountain Girl were on the roof of uh, um, Stuart Brand's apartment in San Francisco and the police, the police had uh, been totally following him for i mean they wanted him um and uh and he and mountain girl had already gotten busted once and they they went up on the roof and they you know surrounded them and i think they threw some pot down something but the police got it anyway they got busted and that would be kesey facing and probably mountain girl too a long prison sentence in those days so kesey faked his death and went to mexico and eventually there were a lot of the pranksters in the bus went to mexico but before that we went to la and did the watts acid test and had some other adventures. And then the bus went to Mexico. I didn't, I love Mexico. I'd already spent a summer there when I was 14. So I, I loved it, but I really wanted to play music in San Francisco. So when the bus went South, I came back North.
0: Yeah. So you come back to um, San Francisco area, but I mean, it, it also sounds like you're in a place where um you know, you, it, it's been a chunk of time where you've been riding the psychedelic wave. Um, your parents see you. They freak out a little bit, it sounds like. And a commit- lot. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and basically give you a choice. Like, you're either getting committed to this place. <laughs>
3: it wasn't actually that they tricked me. Oh. Yeah, it was a trick. I didn't know. No, I did not know. They, they, you know, they uh, they basically, by then I had done a lot of acid and I was really exploring how do you get to those states of consciousness. How could I get to those places without taking anything? How could I get there and stay there so that I would never have to come down? That's what I was kind of interested in. I was, and my friend Merlin and I, she was called Martha in those days, Martha Wenner. And I had decided we were going to try and rent a house in Muir Beach. And we were developing these, these trust games to try and give people a sense of what a psychedelic experience might open for you, but without psychedelics. So we had this whole outline of what we were going to do. And my folks said, you know, well, we'll help you do that. We'll, you know, pay your first month's rent for your little house that you want to rent and get you started. But we need you to, we want you to go to the hospital and take a physical because you haven't done that in a long time. So they, it was a trick. And I ended up in the psych ward at Mount Zion Hospital in San Francisco. And I, you know, took a you know, some hours before I figured out why I wasn't getting the physical, right? Um, But I ended up staying there for three months and I stayed there because the doctor said, you know, your parents are really frightened. We should do some family therapy. You need to kind of not have them in this state. They could actually commit you to a much worse place than this. And so, uh, you know, and then the other piece was, it was only while I was in the hospital that I met the man who was recovering on the few floors up, who became the first manager for the Ace of Cups, who was a mystic and we started writing music together. So there was always something for me often about an apparent limiting situation that was a stepping or a portal into something really good for me.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So this, you're talking about Ambrose Hollywood. Yes, yeah. Right. And it seems like a lot of gears start to shift for you then where music really becomes the dominant force So Ace of Cups comes together and it's you, I guess you didn't start it, but you're in Mm. fairly-
3: I'm the last one to join. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, And it becomes, I guess, would it be either the or one of the first women rock bands in the whole San Francisco area?
3: We were the first ones in the Bay Area music scene, for sure.
0: And probably one of the first in the country at that time.
3: Yeah, there weren't that many. I mean, it's so, through the years now, we've connected with other people- I mean, I'd played in other bands before, including a band that turned into Moby Grape was the band that I was playing in just before I joined the Ace of Cups. And and I've always been the only woman in the band. And so when I met Mary Ellen at Blue Cheer's House on New Year's Eve, 1966, the last night of 1966, and she was playing the blues, you know, just on her acoustic guitar and just rocking, I was like, I'd never seen a woman do that, you know? And I pulled out a harmonica and started playing with her. And she told me they was she was getting together with some other women and they were starting an all-one band. And I, it was like a my mind, was like, all oh, women band, that sounds so weird. You know, I can't even imagine it, right? But I went over to check them out and, yeah, we had a good time together. And I kept going back, you know, because it was fun.
0: Yeah, and, and the rest is history. I mean... You, you end up playing around a whole bunch, eventually playing on stage with Hendrix and Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, playing The Dead. But I guess it was an interesting time also. Like you said, there were a lot of women singing groups, not a lot of women in bands, especially hard rocking, blues back, you know, like bands where everyone's playing the instruments, writing their own stuff. Yeah. And it seemed like that was this window where music was exploding. The scene was exploding. A lot of people were getting signed. But you... You were, and the Ace of Cups were really an anomaly. And it sounds like the industry didn't really know what to do with you.
3: I think that's totally true. And we had five members, five lead singers, everybody sang, everybody wrote, and we had all had different musical influences. So we never felt that we had to put ourselves in a particular bag. And, 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 you know, if, you know, Mary Gannon wanted to sing kind of a humorous song that, you know, kind of harkened back to her like Broadway mothers or in her theater background. That was cool. And if Diane wanted to sing something that was, you know, a little more country or Mary Ellen, more bluesy. I mean, we, we, I mean, we just felt like we could do it all. And we, you know, we were really influenced by the psychedelic music going on. So we, you know, Big you know, Quicksilver was kind of our big brother band and um, we were influenced a lot by the long jams. And Marla was more of an R&B singer for sure. You know, so I think our sets and, and also included acapella singing. We'd sing No More War. We'd just sing, come up and put our arms around each other and sing No More War with our, whoever was there, the audience. So we didn't, I think we just didn't fit. Plus, we were these, you know, hippie chicks and, I, you know, often barefoot. I don't know what they thought of us. You know, the record labels. Yeah. So we didn't get offered the kind of deals that the other bands did.
0: This was also a time where um, the industry was, I mean, the industry has changed and it's, it's gone through a lot of evolutions, but it was essentially bought, you know, Airplay was bought. This was the time of Paola. Yes. And you had sort of like King and Queen makers. Yes. Um and if they just didn't like if one person didn't vibe with you, it was game over.
3: Right. Right. You know, I think a lot of those people that were with the record labels that were looking for something that was like something that was already a hit, you know, who was going to be the next Beatles or the next birds or the next, you know. And I have to say for a number of people for whom success did come at that point it didn't serve them well in terms of their lives. And I always wonder what would have happened if they had just been kind of working musicians for longer and, and maybe they wouldn't have kind of taken the paths that they did. And, you know, there's so many people that, uh, you know, I, I just wish I could hear their, what their music would have evolved into and their spirits and their souls. And It's a sad loss for a lot of those luminous people. You know, Janice, Michael Bloomfield, Jimmy, of course.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the world took a lot of people way too early. Yeah. Um, you guys are still playing from what I understand coming into 69. I know you were at, you were at Altamont. Yeah. Were you playing there or were no, you?
3: No, we just, we were, I was, uh, five months pregnant at that point, And okay. I had gone with my husband, Noel Jukes, who's a jazz player in the city, in, in the Bay Area. And we had gone there and we were sitting way up in the back not near the stage and you know but there were two hundred and fifty thousand people sitting shoulder to shoulder on this kind of amphitheater like dusty raceway and someone threw a quart beer bottle in the air i never saw it but they lobbed it from way behind us and went way up high in the air and it hit me in the skull and uh after some adventures i ended up in san francisco back at mount zion hospital <laughs> where i was in having neurosurgery being five months pregnant and um mm. So I was I was out of Altamont before the the violence, before Meredith Hunter was killed that night and before everything else happened. Yeah.
0: For those who don't know the history, I mean, this is it's it, I think it's still probably viewed as sort of one of the most notorious nights in rock history. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Bill Graham said it was the end, you know, the end of the darkest yeah. night. Of, yeah.
0: Stones in concert, uh, uh, Hells Angels are sort of like running. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, something, uh, security, something resembling that. And it just, mm-hmm. it, it's not a good day. Um, at that point, were you already on the way out of playing? Um, were you sort of moving into the next season of life?
3: Not really. I mean, I thought I would, you know, because we already had had two babies in the band already. So we'd been still playing, but I think my daughter was born that April. You know, my husband was a mission. We were we were still playing, but it definitely was less for the next year. So there were a lot of things going on that um so we were sort of drifting in different directions at that point.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like you um you drift in a very different direction also. Um, a couple of years later you end up um, in Kauai. Right. But it sounds like Interesting parallel. I mean, totally different circumstances. When your mom came here, she wasn't intending necessarily to make a home. Right. Similarly, it sounds like you you go to Kauai originally for some sort of Aikido conference or gathering or something like that, and basically never go back.
3: Well, yeah. I had come to Kauai for a summer when I was 15. The summers when I was 14 and 15, summer of 14, I, I found a program in, in Puerto Vallarta and went and spent the summer there. And the summer I was 15, I was really desperate to learn to surf. So I got in this program that was here on Kauai and spent the summer here. So I knew I, I had totally, I literally, my mom had to come over and drag me home crying. I was never going to leave. And um, I was like, you know, I had felt I had found my, my place and my family and my culture, really. Um, the Hawaiian culture. I just fell in love with the music and the people. So when everything with Ace of Cups dissolved, and my actually my marriage too, um, so Noel and I had split up and my friend Merlin and I came to Kauai and again thought that we'd spend a a little, you know, a few weeks here or something like that. But we ended up camping for the summer. We met someone who had some land and we had tents with us and I got my baby and my dulcimer in my tent. And we um, got, you know, fell in love again with this island for me. And then by the fall, rented a house. And by Thanksgiving day, Mary Gannon uh, from the Ace of Cups, because I had left all my, my amp, my electric guitar, my sitar, all of my instruments were still in, in rent. And Mary Gannon said she would bring everything over. And this will give you an idea of the times. She brought 11 pieces of luggage including, you know, a twin reverb amp, um, a, a sitar, a tampura wrapped in blankets, 11 pieces of luggage, like, my, my big Gibson hollow body guitar, 11 pieces of luggage, no charge for luggage. And she was able to bring the sitar and the tampura on the plane. And uh, anyway, that was those days. <laughs> so she came thinking she would stay for a little while. She came with her daughter, Talina, and then she never left. And she met her husband, Andy here, and they're still together. They have five more kids and, um, she's still here.
0: Yeah. I and mean, that's amazing you know, <laughs> that, that really, it becomes home for you. becomes home for her. Um, and it, it sounds like it also really, you're, I mean, music is always a part of you, but you're settling into just a different season of life. It was, is, is that where you also start to become really involved in organic farming? And
3: well, we were, we were farming in Marin County too. I mean, we had big gardens and things like that. So I was. And I always felt like it was really important to have land and grow your own food. It's like I felt like I had this focus to do that from pretty early on. I mean, I stopped eating meat when I was 18, you know, and I was just interested in how you grow food. So and I always felt that things could break down in society. And that it was really good to be able to grow your own food.
0: Right. Be self-sufficient. Yeah. Yes.
3: You know, and I didn't take it as far as some people did, but I took it to some degree, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I don't live, we don't live here off the grid, you know. But yeah, that was always a, a call for me to have land and to grow food. Music was always a part of everything. I, I never stopped playing. When I got here, I got really into Hawaiian music and slack key and, and, and singing. And then I got together with someone I lived with for nine years who was, from o- Oahu and, and was a slack key player and songwriter. So we worked playing Hawaiian music for years.
0: So it just evolves. Yeah.
3: It just kept evolving. Yeah.
0: Taking a different shape basically. Yeah,
3: And um, I mean, well, we lived in a little Valley um, and we just were playing a more acoustic music. I had a beautiful acoustic guitar at the time and we were, and I played dulcimer, which really worked well with slack key music. So I just got into the culture in that way, but, and, and surfing which is still like one of my magic places is the ocean. And just to paddle out anywhere, you know, is just some of my best ideas and lyrics and everything have come just bobbing around in the ocean.
0: Yeah, I I think I haven't done a lot of surfing. I've done a little bit of it, but what, um, I think that the common perception for those who've never been on a surfboard is probably just like, yeah, you paddle out and you just catch a wave, catch a wave, catch a wave, where the reality is most of your time, you're just kind of sitting and waiting and looking at the horizon. And that can be really magical time if you don't sort of like beat yourself up about the fact that, you know, like a great you know, set isn't sort of like coming really quickly.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, here in Kauai, the waves are like different than some other places in the world and so you know you might be paddling for your life the whole time you're out there you know I mean but on a more mellow day it'll be what yeah. you described you know where there'd be time between sets and there may be other people out you can't take as many waves as you might if you were just the only person out there and so you're sharing and you're appreciating other people's waves and um, you know and for me I you know just like paddle way out and just bob around and um, And just kind of let, let everything flow through.
0: Yeah. It's a magical place.
3: Yeah.
2: customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com
4: code buttery exclusions apply see site for details mom deserves better than a drugstore card
0: In the next decade or so, you become one of the co-founders of the Island School. It sounds like it was really built a lot around Howard Gardner's ideas of multiple intelligence, it's sort of an, an alternative approach to yes. recognizing the intelligence in every kid and maybe how they need to learn and participate uh, and experience things differently to really fully flourish.
3: Yeah, I t- totally. I You know, what happened was by the time my daughter was two and a half, or three, going on three. And I knew I wanted to stay here, but I had started going, volunteering at some schools and visiting some schools. And I knew there wasn't a school here that I would feel good about sending her to. And so I started reaching out to other people and it turned out over time, a group of seven women, we got together and started the school. And I think for me coming out of the Ace of Cups, I was like, well, yeah, if a bunch of women get together, there's just nothing we can't do. And the fact that we didn't have any money or didn't have, you know, whatever we didn't have, it was just, that's okay. And we, you know, of those seven women, one had a master's degree in education. Two others had teaching credentials. Others of us had other skills. My friend Merlin is just brilliant. And she ended up writing the first grants for us so that we got uh the money to have a kitchen at our school. Once we, we got rented a building, we you know found a building, we developed our curriculum. So it took a couple of years of work to get the school from a, an idea to our opening day, which was 44 years ago last week. Wow. Yeah, but the school, you know we opened with 12 students. Um, we'd spent till midnight the night before doing final painting in some of the rooms. And the school ran there for some years and then we were given a beautiful piece of land, uh, in another part of the Island, right adjacent to next door to the college, to the community college. So the school now has a 40 acre campus next to the college and I think 420 students pre-K through 12. And it's a preeminent, uh, school, you know, on the Island and one of the, in Hawaii and one of the great schools.
0: That's amazing. Such a powerful thing to create. And I just love the idea of sort of like It seems like there were all these moments of you're kind of like, well, we're getting the band back together, you know, like whether it's to start a school, whether it's to do a show. um, And then this notion that, you know, like there's nothing we can't figure out. Okay. So we've never done this before. It's never been done before. So,
3: right. Right. (laughs) You
0: know, it's all, we we can make it happen. It's all good. Um, You end up coming back, it sounds like, tell me if I have this right, back to the mainland down around um, like LA, Santa Monica, Venice area, where it seems like I know you had been, exposed to yoga really early in life as you shared through your mom and then through teachers. But then that really takes a much more central role too, both in your own practice and also you stepping out as, as a teacher.
3: Right. You know, I always had my own practice. In fact, the reason I didn't go to the Monterey Pops Festival with the rest of my band who went as the guests of the electric flag in my Bloomfield, was because I was starting to study sitar that Monday with Nikhil Banerjee, who was this amazing teacher from India, who was teaching for the summer in the, in the Bay Area. And I would stay home to do yoga and meditate for the weekend so that I would be ready to start to practice sitar, the, you know, on Monday. So it had always been a very real part of my life. But when I came to LA, I came to LA uh, in 83 to go to music school. So I moved to LA and some friends of mine there said, what are you going to do if you can't surf every day? You know, cause you're living in Hollywood and you're in school all day. And I was like, I don't know. And they said, well, you should come and meet this teacher. So it took me to a yoga class that really worked for me. It turned out to, it was Bikram. And mm-hmm. um, I ended up, it was not too far from the school and where it was living. And, and, you know, it was in Beverly Hills. I was in Hollywood. And uh, so I just started going to yoga as my workout. And as my, you know, my practice and balance out being in music school all day. and, you know, pretty soon Bikram asked me to start teaching there. You know, he would t- have the more advanced students teach classes when he wasn't available or when he was in India. And out of that, this whole thing evolved for me to be able to be teaching yoga. And, and then I started Ashtanga a couple few years later. And so I ended up teaching Bikrams for a while and Ashtanga. And it just came to me. I never really intended it for that to be anything other than my personal practice. But, you know yoga all of a sudden started to gather momentum in the culture. And uh, I never like advertised or anything like that. I just kind of people would hear of me or find me and I ended up teaching people. I mostly did private classes for those next years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious how you experienced the culture of the yoga community. Cause you know, you come out of a, um, a music scene where, um and also just a place where, you are regularly coming together with women and just doing amazing things. And to a certain extent, working within broader culture where maybe there are a lot more men, but also you're carving out a place for, of your own. And, you know, in the context of the island school, making something entirely new and defining the culture. And then you step into the culture of yoga in the US in the 80s. And it's different now, I, I think. But it was very patriarchal culture. You mm-hmm. said, you know, like Vikram, Patabi Joyce. When you know, like we're talking about Ashtanga, it was all. It was the the quote gurus were almost entirely.
3: Yeah, Andra Devi was an exception. Right, Devi you know, was yeah. the only
0: one. Right. right. What was that like for you? Because you're very strong, and and a, you know, like strong, you know, opinions strongly held, and you're capable, and you've done so much. Right. Did you struggle with that at all?
3: Well, you know, the funny thing is that. Bikram, my relationship with Bikram, and I know that things got a lot weirder later, but when Bikram married Rajasri, um, you know, first of all, Bikram because also kind of mentored my daughter. My daughter used to come to classes and and you know, he was, she you know, she was 13. He was always good to us. You know, he was Bikram, he was a total character, but he never there was never anything untoward that happened to me or in my realm of experience with them other than him, you know, being a dictator, you know, kind of going off on people, you know, but when he married Rajasri, uh, he was in, it was in India and we were in Kauai and my daughter by that time was like 15, 16, and he came straight to Kauai from India with her. And she had never been away from her. She'd never been alone with a man till she married him. She had been with her father, you know, that was the only man she'd ever been alone with her whole life. And she'd never been on an airplane. She'd never been out of India. And they married and they came straight to Kauai and stayed somewhere near us in Princeville. And Bikram was just like, you know, she needs to be with you and needs to be with Torah, you know, because Rajasri was, I think, maybe 19 or 20 at the time and Torah was 50. So we met her. We were the first people. To hang with her when she came, and so you know we had a, kind of a different relationship. We played the music for his wedding party in LA. You know, I didn't have kind of bad experiences that people had later with, with Bikram.
0: Yeah, and I was even just curious about the just the broader culture around yoga.
3: It was not just the patriarchy, and it was all the people that were like taking on the the um, strictures of all of those. Uh, practices. And, you know, I mean, for me, I mean, if I went, my daughter and I and uh, her friend Britta went to India and studied with Patabi in was at 1992. And, you know, and I've been practicing a lot around yoga works at that time. And, and just uh, to me, kind of what I really started to see was that the, I don't know, the, the pedagogy of some of these practices not even necessarily from the teacher, not so much from Patabi, but more from, I think, Iyengar and some of the Iyengar people. It just got more and more, you have to have your hand like this. Your foot must be there. This, might, you know, it was like all of these things. that. Because I, you know, I'd been around yoga in San Francisco in, you know, when it was um, Magana and um, Walt Baptiste had a little yoga school in San Francisco. It was like much um, more gentle and, and, and there weren't these... These ideas of alignment that that, that that as though everybody had the same kind of body you know rather than something that was something that was a more inner expression that flowed from you in your unique way because with your unique body and your unique spirit so that's the thing that really started to get to me in the yoga world was just this this dogmatism and to me denial of uh, you know these things that you were supposed to say that you know like okay, everybody, step step three feet apart. I was practicing, but Kareem Jabbar was one of my students. And we went to, when Patavi was in LA, one time I, I took him to a, a few days of workshop with Patavi. And what, you know, I'm standing next to Kareem and, then, and the instruction is, step your feet three feet apart.
0: Right, you that's know. not possible. Where did
3: that gospel come from? <laughs> right. You know, he's like, you know, his feet are like, and that's really was sort of the beginning for me of the, when I got into yin yoga and started really working with Paul and Susie Grilly and we sort of part of the test group that was developing a much more functional approach to practice to yoga. So, and then, you know, that's when I eventually kind of stopped teaching Ashtanga and started teaching yin. And that's been my passion ever since I go to other places in my life for my workout. I don't go to yoga for a workout. I go to yoga for the, uh, fluidity and, um, and flow and and depth and calm and staying mobile. I was
0: curious about that, the 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 easing into yin. For those who don't know Ashtanga is a is a is a very, very intense physical and ag- aggressive, uh, depending on how it's practiced, approach to the physical practice of Asana. And um yin is this really it's a much more gentle, accommodating static, um, allowing your body to release itself at its own pace.
3: On the floor, you know, you're, you're, right. you're using gravity, you're relaxing, but it's right. also, if you're, it, my, my approach to yin, it's not just, it's not like what people call restorative. I mean, it is no. restorative in nature. If you're really, really stretching yeah. those places of, in your core, your hips and spine that tend to get, get more and more contracted, especially in a chair sitting culture. So I love the the energy of yin.
0: Yeah, and it can be very intense. I mean, you can, yeah. you can be breathing deeply as your body starts to let go. You know,
3: probably just you know being me that if everybody in the world did did Yin Yoga and nobody was doing anything yang, I'd be teaching a Yin practice because I, <laughs> you know, because I I love Yin, but it, you know, partly it was just because nobody was doing it. Everything was Vinyasa yeah. or Bikram or Ashtanga, and Yin is to me the foundation. If you read in Patanjali how he describes Asana, you know, the physical practices. It's a complete description of Yin.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I taught um, Vinyasa for about seven years, and my body really gravitated away from it and much more towards the you know my my own sort of adapted version of Yin because that's that's what I need. And like you said, you look at the this you know Patanjali, you know fundamentally, you know in the U.S. we look at you know the physical practices as the end, whereas the, the original intention was this is just what opens and prepares our body to sit towards the you know more with more ease into the more esoteric. And, and very likely deeper parts yeah. of the practice. you know. Yeah. So it, it is interesting to see how it's landed in the U.S., how it's evolved. And I'm, I'm actually really curious to see where it goes over the next decade or so.
3: I don't know if you follow the conspirituality or, or some of the, the guys that yeah. are doing. Um, yeah. There's some really great guys, Derek Perez, Julian Walker, and um, Matthew Remsky, who have really been taking on abuse in the yoga, spiritual world, and then most recently QAnon and what they call conspirituality and the the rabbit hole that so many people that are in the quote wellness community have gone down in terms of of QAnon and um, anti-vaxxing and all of those things. And I've been part of a group that's taken on to try and and counter that. Um, I feel that turning oneself over and losing critical thinking, whether it's in cults or you know yoga cults or q cults you know that we need to nourish that that clarity of thought or that that uh that, that that discriminating wisdom that you know is in patanjali and is in any any worthwhile spiritual teaching and not go down these rabbit holes and so i i, I always appreciate people that are calling abuse and cultism
0: yeah you um in the last handful of years, end up getting the band back together. All right. So some 50 years or so after you're originally with these incredible women,
4: yeah,
0: Ace of Cups ends up back in the studio.
3: Right. So what happened was there's a fellow named George Bayer Wallace, lives in New York, has a little boutique record label, beautiful label um, that mostly is focused on reissuing or issuing for the first time music of our era, the 60s era, either that was released and went out of print or was never even released. But he is a connoisseur of finding music that and giving it great packaging, great liner notes, great everything. And up until us, pretty much everything was already recorded. So he had reached out to me because we didn't, we had never gotten a chance to go into the studio with our own music and make a record. And so he reached out to me wondering if we had music that was unreleased. And we really, we had one record that came out in 2003 made from old tapes that, you know, Mary Gannon and Diane and, uh, and Marla had carried uh, around for some years that were like rehearsal tapes and, and live gig tapes from the 60s. But we didn't have anything of great quality. We just had this, but our our first uh, hero, Alec Palau from... Uh, a record label in England, went through all of those tapes and extracted the best of it. And we released a record of live music from the 60s. So fast forward a few years later, we get a call from George Wallace saying, do you have any music anymore that I could release? And we didn't. But we became, became close with George. We got an invitation to play at Wavy Gravy's 75th birthday party. And we put the band back together with George's help, rented a house, got a a rehearsal space, played a gig. And then after that, Mary Ellen, our guitarist, and Diane and I just wanted to keep playing together. And we all lived in California in different places. And George made it possible he would rent us a space or help with airfare or something like that so we could all get together. And we just started playing and writing. And pretty soon he, he just said, you're like writing great stuff and I love what you're doing. You need to go in the studio. So we found our producer, Dan Shea, and we started recording in 2015. And we went from recording 12 songs to 16, to 21, to 36. So we released our first album in 2018. It was a double album, 26 songs and a 17-page book. And then we released the next album about eight, 10 weeks ago. It's called Sing Your Dreams. And we have another album that We'll
0: finish when COVID lets us get back together. It's about half done. Mm, it's amazing, and, and I mean, you've also you've brought in all these collaborators to jam with you guys. Um, when you get together, you know, granted, you played little things here and there, or like one or two of you have gotten together and played, but when all of you, when you you're back together in a studio, number one. In the studio that, in a weird way, you were almost denied 50 years ago. Yeah, it was like
3: really the first time that right. Cups got to, it was the first time we got to work on our music in the studio. Right. We had to learn a lot of things. Things changed in the 50 years. <laughs> you know, we used to sing backups. We sang at backups for the Airplane and Quicksilver and Mike Bloomfield, but we would gather around one mic and sing our, our background vocals.
0: And, and also, I mean... The vocal blend when you're all together is, is, is I don't have to tell you, is, is stunning. What's it like to be back in a studio? Like when the first time, you know, you all come together and you start to hit those harmonies together, you know, like some 50 years later. What's that like for you?
3: Well, you know, it feels, no, it just feels like the most natural thing. Like when, especially, you know, these songs if I ever played my song music by myself, which I did, you know, people say, Hey, sing a song you wrote and I'd play music. But in my head, I was hearing all my sisters who weren't there singing their parts, you know? And so it's just like that coming together feels so good and feels so like we never stopped.
0: Mm. It feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So hanging out here in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up?
3: Offer. I think it's all about offering into the oneness or offering into the the collective that we are in whatever form is available, you know? And um, for me, it's been like offer some things that I've explored in terms of movement and flow and offer that and offer music and offer. Right now I'm offering food that I'm harvesting to our local food banks. That's like I'm the front line. You know, my main job right now is farming and uh, just being part of the food supply. It's all just another expression of how to offer into what we are.
0: Together. Mm, thank you. Okay, so while I know you play a number of different instruments, um your harmonica is pretty much always on you and I see you happen to have it there. Yes. Would you mind playing a little something for us?
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay.